Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. Uh, I have to say that this episode will be mainly about Taipan helicopters. I know that's dominated the, the previous two. And not that there have been any sort of new smoking gun revelations, but I just like to unpack a bit more information because it's a story that is getting far more attention still than this government would like. And I noticed that Ministers Miles and Conroy appear to have gone into witness protection, but don't worry, they can't stay there forever. Now, I was at the National Press Club on Thursday, January 25th, hoping to ask the Prime Minister a question. And for the benefit of listeners, the question was going to be, noting that Germany has just donated six very old seeking helicopters to Ukraine, why are you disassembling and burying 45 modern, highly capable Taipans rather than send them to a country fighting for its survival? That was the planned question. Uh, If I'd been feeling really stirred up, I would have added, uh, are you ashamed? Do you still stand by the two ministers responsible for this debacle? Anyway, it's all theoretical because I was 17 on the list of of journalists. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. There has to be some priority and that's given to the, the major newspapers and the TV networks. And the focus was very much on stage three tax cuts. But anyway, as an aside, The session was an illustration of how the press gallery works, which is often less than ideal. Uh, The main line of questioning to the Prime Minister was the changes with stage three tax cuts. Is this a broken promise? The problem was that the same question was basically asked and answered seven or eight times. And so it had a very repetitive and productive air. But anyway, that's just the world that we live in. Now, I'm also a little bit surprised that the opposition has been silent on this matter, apart, as I mentioned, from a conversation I had with Senator David Fawcett, uh, revealing that he had notified the government in mid-October of Ukraine's interest, and also Andrew Hastie has condemned the government's refusal to give them to Ukraine. Uh, But since then, it's been quiet. Now, that might be that they wish to cause maximum damage to the government and maximum damage to Richard Miles in particular, in which case they would just wait for the government to dig itself further into a hole, ha-ha, you know, digging a hole for the Taipan helicopters, because at the moment my information is that a certain number of airframes are still retrievable, but the more time goes on, um, the more difficult that task gets. And it gives the opposition potentially just even more ammunition to bring this up in Parliament. Whether they plan to do so or not, I simply do not know. That's just my guess. But to return to the question I would have liked to have asked, based on Germany's transfer of seekings to Ukraine, the Royal Australian Navy used to have seekings, and guess what replaced them? Taipans. Australia had 12 seekings. The final six were retired in 2011 when a number of problems were found with things such as their mechanical flight controls. And mm, mechanical flight controls, 
such as the ones we are going back to with Black Hawks and also Apache helicopters. Both Taipan and Tiger have fully digital flight control systems that are safer and easier to maintain. And in a future episode, I'll certainly be going into a great deal more detail about that, particularly regarding Apaches. Anyway, those six Sea Kings, very good, robust helicopters from the 1970s. Uh, Some are still in service, well, obviously with Germany. I think the Indian Navy operates them, built by Sikorsky, uh, made to last, but very old technology. Those six Taipans that were in service with the Royal Australian Navy until being retired a couple of years ago, when it came to their maintenance and support, would you believe that the Navy supply system is completely separate from the Army supply system? So if a Navy Taipan needed a replacement gearbox, even though in the same workshop you could see an Army gearbox sitting there unused, they just weren't allowed to touch it. Anyway, those six Taipans were used for sort of mainly non-combat roles, such as ship-to-shore transfers of people and equipment and vertical replenishment missions and things like that. But they were replaced by twice that number of very specialised anti-submarine warfare helicopters, MH-60R Romeos, at a cost of one5 Billion. And again, no one has ever explained why you would re- or how you, you would justify replacing six utility helicopters with 12 way more expensive combat helicopters. But anyway, that, that's just one of the many mysteries surrounding this. But let's have a look at sustainment costs because a Seahawk, an MH60 Romeo, is the naval version of the Black Hawk. It has the same fuselage, the same engines, the same cockpit, and the same flight control system. However, it's a more complex machine because it carries weapons and is equipped with a dipping sonar, and the weapons include air-to-surface missiles and anti-submarine warfare torpedoes. So that makes it at first glimpse a bit more complex than Taipan, but not that much more because Taipans also have a lot of complex electronics. Now, this is quite a complex topic, and I don't want to trip over myself by mixing maintenance costs for different fleets of helicopters, so I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. Let's look at the original 24 Romeo helicopters that the Navy bought back in 2010. The 12 new ones won't arrive for another couple of years, so we can set them to one side. Now, the sale back then of those 24 helicopters was about 3.2 billion Australian dollars. And a short time later, uh, just a few months later, the US signed a 10-year support agreement for those 24 helicopters at an estimated cost of 1.6 billion over 10 years. Okay, so that's US $160 million per year to support 24 Romeos. That's in Australian dollars, $243 million for a fleet of 24. But hang on. The total fleet of Taipans was 46, and they were costing around $200 million a year. So 
that's almost half the cost of supporting Seahawks per platform. Very simply, 46 is a bigger number than 24, and 243 million is a bigger amount of money than 200 million. Yet over and over, defence and army would refer to the unacceptable cost of Taipan, which is just on those figures, this is all public domain information, that's looking like a very bold claim to me. But wait, there's even more. In August of 2017, the State Department notified Congress of an upgrade program for the 24 Romeo helicopters, Australian dollars, that was another $545 million that needed to be added to the mix. The budget papers show that in the current financial year, again, the Romeos, they're outside now, that 10-year deal we signed, uh, will cost $195 million. And again, that's double the cost of Taipan per platform. By the way, the budget papers also confirm money was allocated for the storage of Taipans at Townsville once they had been taken out of service. So once again, we have yet another question to ask about why they were taken out of service, cut up and destroyed rather than stored. Oh, by the way, uh, the budget papers also show that we will receive a mere six Black Hawks this financial year, of which three have arrived after retiring 45 Taipans. And that's a huge capability gap that doesn't seem to concern either army or the government. But getting back to the scrapping of the Taipans, there has been a huge public negative reaction to this. And even our relatively obscure website has had more than 200,000 views. And that was a couple of weeks ago. If you add in other news sites, including some coverage in the Australian newspaper and the ABC, and I went on uh, the Andrew Bolt report, it's a solid amount of coverage. And as far as I can tell, and I think this is a key factor, no one supports the position of the government. Even Taipan haters, of whom there are still quite a few, recognise the cruelty and the utter stupidity of destroying them rather than transferring them to Ukraine. I've asked before, what sort of country and what type of ministers behave like this? Now, I've touched, of course, on helicopter operating costs. Most of the Taipan haters continue to rely on the too expensive, too unreliable argument, and they sometimes cite critical ANAO reports. Those reports do exist. They're free for everyone to read them. But it's it's important to understand the ANO, which does great work, is not a separate investigative body. It relies on data supplied by defence. And some Taipan lack of of availability is explained by the most simple reason of all, namely defence consistently failed to order enough spares. If you have nothing in the locker and call the supplier, It's going to take some time. It's just logical. It's for anything that you're trying to support. Now, that might only take a day or two, but if that keeps the helicopter sitting on the ground, it quickly adds to its reputation for unreliability. And anecdotally, Blackhawks have had plenty of problems in the past themselves, as I've I've touched on. Now, another very important factor in this is how a flying hour is calculated. Because Taipans are fully digital, the pilot plugs in a USB and at the end of the mission, 
takes it out. That goes into a computer which calculates to the second how long the helicopter was in the air. Blackhawks do not have that. They are a reliable and clunky aircraft from the 1970s. The calculation of their flying or a flying hour in a Blackhawk is more arbitrary. It starts when the crew starts to power up the thing and ends when they decide the mission is over. Now, during a mission, if a Black Hawk sits on the ground, if it's dropped some troops somewhere and keeps its engines running, that counts as a flight hour. Whereas with a Taipan, a flight hour is measured when it is actually in the air. So it's never been a case of apples and apples comparisons. Was the ANO made aware of that difference, for example, just calculating or working out how a flying hour is calculated? I very much doubt it, leading to extraordinarily damaging and mathematically incorrect conclusions that Taipan is way more expensive to operate than Blackhawks. Now, having said that, Taipan is likely to be more expensive because it's a modern, very safe helicopter with a lot of pre-flight checks and some very fancy, expensive electronics in it. When I started detailed research into this topic about a year ago, I assumed that all of the information Defence was pumping out about Taipan was a consequence of innocent mistakes or carelessness, carelessness. I have now come to a different conclusion and As I've stated in podcasts and written, it is far more likely that a small number of senior officers have done everything in their power to get back to good old Black Hawks from the days when petrol was 90 cents a litre and the internet hadn't been invented. And the fact that this indulgence, because I'm putting together the Black Hawk fleet with also purchasing Apaches, that's in excess of $11 billion dollars, which I think is an appalling number, just to be spent basically to pander to the prejudices of a few senior army officers. And the fact that army are deliberately burying the evidence of their mismanagement is almost beyond words, especially when so many Ukrainian soldiers are dying because they can't get to hospital in time. And I ask, is there no one in this government or in the Defence Department, that has a shred of human decency left? I guess we know the answer to that one. Anyway, eventually, uh, Defence Minister Richard Miles is going to have to explain himself, and I think others, such as the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. And I note that we're almost at the two-year anniversary mark of Russia's horrible invasion of Ukraine, and our embassy in Kiev still has not reopened. Now, I'm going to finish up with a few words about um, the conflict in Gaza and uh, Israel and Hamas. Uh, I ventured a comment a couple of weeks after Hamas's brutal attack on Israeli civilians, one of the most awful terrorist attacks in world history, but that the Israeli response was not in the best long-term interests of the state of Israel. I felt that even back then, the number of civilian deaths was unacceptably high and all that was going to happen was that a new generation of terrorists would be produced. I was concerned then, and even more so now, 
that Israel has lost its moral authority. And I think that's going to have long-term consequences as well. So when I suggest that the best course of action or the least worst course of action is some sort of operational pause to figure out what's going on, I'm saying this in the interests of Israel. I'd just like to remind people of events a hundred years ago, remind people who are like ceaselessly boosting and cheering on Israel, saying, yes, 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 crush them, release more bombs, get the tanks to fire some more, blast them out of existence. Now, the causes of the First World War are complex, and many, many billions of words have been written about it in multiple languages and by people far smarter than me. But I think we can all agree that the, 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 the most important single event that led to the conflict was a terrorist attack in June 1914, namely by a Serbian nationalist on the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife in Sarajevo, two shots, two dead people. It was a long time ago, and yes, there were other historical factors at play superpower rivalry and all of that sort of stuff. But if that single terrorist attack had not occurred, there might not have been a First World War or it could have been a more easily contained conflict. It took a full month between the assassination and then for Austria to declare war on Serbia on the 28th of July. Now, that month was taken up with various fanatics mostly Austrian arch-nationalists egging on the Austrian government to attack Serbia. The lunatic fringe insisted on sending Serbia a list of demands that they knew were completely unacceptable. Well, amazingly, the Serbs actually did accept them. So the Austrian response was to make demands that were even more unacceptable. The Germans were, of course, supportive of Austria, but they were a little bit cautious in all of this. And in fact, by late July, the Kaiser had gone on holiday, believing the worst was over. The British had tried to play a stabilizing hand. The French were a mixed bunch, but their ambassador in St. Petersburg, a thoroughly evil piece of work, was having none of that. And he kept urging Tsar Nicholas II to begin mobilization. And when the Tsar finally gave in to French pressure, that was that. The Austrians had declared war to placate some of their own lunatics. And as soon as the Russians started to mobilize their massive army, no other European uh, country could afford to be left behind. All of the reserves started to be called up and they all started to move to their wartime positions near the frontiers. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I give you four years of unimaginable slaughter, nine million dead, and many more than that with lives ruined with missing limbs and sightless eyes from poison gas. That was meant to be the war to end all wars, and obviously it didn't work out that well. Everyone out there, and I mean, you know, worldwide, not just in Australia, who believe that the only response to terror is to kill all terrorists, no matter what the con consequences are, you might wish to take a very deep breath and think this through. Okay, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, I'm sorry to end on a depressing note. Um, thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye for now. 
That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefencereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.